Well, good morning as you make your way back to your seat. Uh, so glad that you guys are here to celebrate Palm Sunday with us. And as uh, Daniel said, we are celebrating Easter next week. You guys don't want to miss it. It'll be a great celebration. Uh, got a few families out traveling this week. How many people are on spring break this week? Spring break people, loving that you're on spring break. Those that are, in, that are school teachers and those that are students. So, uh, man, just uh, excited to, to be with you guys. Today, uh, I don't, like as Daniel said, I don't know what, everybody always comes in different church on Sunday with different backgrounds and different things you're facing. I don't know if you came in discouraged and need some encouragement. I believe that as we open the word of God, each one of us are going to be encouraged. I'm so thankful that the word of God is alive and breathing and it brings encouragement to our very hearts. So if you came in discouraged, you're going to leave encouraged because we need it, right? Right? So I'm just going to start it off right at the beginning, right? And here we go. Like if you need some encouragement, I don't know what your week had. If you, if you faced a bad week, it was a challenging week. If you had stress, if you had um, people judging, criticizing you, whatever that might have been. Whatever your situation was, you were not the captain of the freight liner in the Sousa Canal this week. Right? So there you go. It's about perspective. You were not the guy that blocked up the canal causing billions of dollars every single day and everybody judging you. So there you go. You're already encouraged. I'm going to turn to John chapter 11 today um, as we look at this amazing story of Jesus. Uh, we've sang Hosanna. We've got the palm tree kind of feel going out here. Uh, it is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus has like had three years of ministry. He's been doing amazing miracles. People are following him. Incredible stuff is happening. He comes into Jerusalem. They're grabbing the wave branches and the branches and waving Hosanna. Hosanna, he says, if they don't cry out, as Marco prayed this morning, the rocks are going to cry out. And so we go, why was all of a sudden like everybody is like celebrating? Like partying, like here he comes, like they're finally seeing like, what did he do right before this that caused people to celebrate to the extent that they were? Right before coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, he did his most incredible miracle of all. He raised someone from the dead. Right? He just raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so people that are, I mean, this is like two miles from Jerusalem, right? So these there, and he's like, they're like, Lazarus, like, I was at your funeral. I, like, Mary and Martha were crying, and I was consoling them, and we buried you, and now I'm having a conversation with you. And people were, like, freaking out. A guy that was dead is now alive. And so I'm going to back up as we go to Palm Sunday and look at this amazing miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus as we celebrate Palm Sunday. And I know right away some of your minds go, oh, yeah. yeah we, we have, we've, we've fallen into two different camps as we hear these stories. We go, oh, yeah, heard, heard that one before. I remember that one. I bet next week he's going to preach on the resurrection of Jesus, right? Like we, we, we kind of already assume and know like where it is going. Heard that one before. Or our human tendency goes, okay, yeah, that's, that's good, but let, let's just pull out the, the moral lesson that we're to learn from it. And we try to explain and not explain. Tell me if I need to change this microphone. And when we do, we lose the mystery of who God is. We lose the mystery of the miracles. We reduce God to the constraints of our brain. Yep.
Thank you. Yes. Take that guy off there. All right. Here we go. When we put God inside of a box, when we put him to the constraints of our left brain, and we try to, we, we take away all that God is meant to be, and we replace him with the lowercase g of a God, he looks a lot like us, he acts like us, he thinks like us, and he's a mere image of us. A.W. Tozer says this, this way, he says, we create God, and when, when we create God in our image, you end up with a God who can never surprise you, never astonish you, never overwhelm you, and never transcend you. I don't know about you, but I don't want a God like that. I don't know about you, but I want a God that can perform miracles. I want a God that can do the impossible. I want a miracle in my life. I want to see things. I don't know about you, but when I see the God of the Bible, I believe in a God who is high and exalted above it all that we sang about today. I see a God who is omnipotent, omnipresent. I mean, he is everything. He is everywhere. He, is, he can do immeasurably more than I can ever think or imagine according to the power that is at work within me. That his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. He is a God who loves the impossible. He loves those that do not deserve love. He gives mercy that I cannot comprehend. He gives grace. He gives, he breaks, my goodness, he breaks the laws of nature. The very laws that he made. The very world that he made. He, He is the God who created the cosmos in one and four worlds of let there be light. This is the God who we are talking about over and all, over and all. He's the one that turns the water into wine. He makes blind people see. And now he raises a man from the dead. Guys, we got to lift it. Sometimes we can just see that's Bible. That's what happened in the Bible times. G.C. Charleston said this, how much happier would you be? How much more of you would there be if the hammer of a higher God would smash your small cosmos. If we could honestly see God as someone greater, someone bigger, someone better. See, in our modern world, in our modern culture, we are tempted to break everything down to a moral lesson, to explain it away so it doesn't even have any miraculous power anymore. And we go, okay, how does this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead make me a better person and give me my three points and me, 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 and my marriage and my my money and all of this, and we make it all about us instead of who he is, and we want to break it down. That's how we've been historically. Another history fact, going to sidetrack here. August 24th, 1814. The British Army, led by General Robert Ross, marched into Washington, D.C. and began to systematically burn the buildings in Washington, D.C. He burnt the treasury, the Capitol, the president's palace, as it was known then, the White House today, and the Library of Congress. Burnt down the Library of Congress and all the books. Used the books as kindling for the fire. Now, some of you guys probably have more books than the Library of Congress had at that time, only about 3,000 books, but they did burn them all. Several months later, on January 30th, 1815, Congress set out to rebuild a new national library, approving the purchase of the largest personal collection of books the li- uh, that the United States had ever bought at one time, and they would belong to the third president, Thomas Jefferson, who once said, I cannot live without books but was apparently willing to sell them for $23,000. Says, I cannot live without them, but I'm apparently willing to sell them. 
So two books that I want to point out that were in that library that he had. The first one is a Bible. He has a Bible in the Congress that, that Thomas Jefferson owned. And the first one was the Geneva, the Geneva was, was printed in Geneva, Switzerland around 1555. And this was printed by a, a printer who's the first one to put the, the Biblica in the Bible. To, so whenever you have the little John 3.16 and you go to the football game and you hide, hold that sign up where it has a number and a verse there, you know that those things are there for that purpose. So he has one of those Bibles, one of the first ones that has the, the references there. And another book is this one that's on the image here is the Jefferson Bible. This has become known as the Jefferson Bible. Maybe you've heard of it. Because Jefferson was a person that had a profound appreciation for the teachings of Jesus. He loved the teachings of Jesus, but along the way as he grew up, as he was a child of the Enlightenment, Jefferson at 16 years old was a student at the College of William and Mary, and his professor William Small introduced him to the writings of John Locke, and introduced him to those writings, and he was enlightened with the, and enthroned the idea of reason and logic as Lord. So Jefferson, embracing this, went to work in February 1805 with a pair of scissors and systematically went out through the Bible, cutting out every single miracle that happens in the life of Jesus. Become known as the Jefferson Bible. All the teachings of Jesus, all the moral things that he teaches and shows us, minus the miracles. He cuts out the virgin birth. He cuts out the resurrection and all the other 34 distinct miracles that Jesus did on this earth. Yet keeping the moral lesson there. So like, I mean, get, getting, get, being very fine with his knife and cutting them out. Like even the, the, the well-known story of Jesus healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. He keeps the teaching about the Sabbath but the man's hand is not healed. In Jefferson's gospel, the gospel ends with the tomb being put over Jesus' tomb, and he does not resurrect from the dead. Lazarus does not rise from the dead. And some of us go, that is hard to imagine. That is hard to imagine. You, you can't do that. You can't take a pair of scissors to God's holy scripture. But the other part of us is really honest, is really true, is that we do the same thing. What promises of the word of God have we stopped claiming in our lives? What truths are in there that we don't believe that God can do anymore? Where have we carefully taken scissors and cut out the parts of Scripture that are hard, complex, confusing, or do not fit into our earthly minds? Because we like to rationalize it away with reason. And when you break it down this way and you put Jesus on the, chop it down with the human logic we are left with a neutered gospel. When you subtract the miracles of Jesus as Jefferson did, yeah, you have a wise, profound, teaching Jesus, but you have a weak Jesus. I need a Jesus who can perform miracles. I need a Jesus with raw power. I need a Jesus that can show up in my life today and answer the prayers that I am praying. 
When you cut out the miracles, you cut Jesus off at the knees, and we miss who he is. And I think we're tempted in our world today to follow a Jesus that we've made up, that we feel comfortable with. 2 Timothy 3 says this, verse 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Don't you hate that that one's in there? Like what? Right there in the middle of all these lists, teenagers, is the disobedient to your parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. How many of you know that there is power with the word of God? And he says, to avoid such people. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And not just power, wonder-working power. Who all remembers that old song? You want to sing it right now? <laughs> power, power, wonder-working power. Right? We just want to bust in the song right now. So Jesus made some bold statements. He said, and then Jesus, like, he says this other bold thing. He says, and this is on the screen, John 14, 12. Whoever believes in me will do the work that I have been doing, and they will even do greater things. If Jesus didn't say it himself, we would say it was heresy. That we would possibly do greater things than him. Greater things. So the point is, if you follow Jesus wholeheartedly, completely, completely, if you follow him long enough, guess what? You're going to see some miracles. If you follow him long enough, you're going to see some miracles. If you follow him long enough, you're going to care for the poor. If you follow him long enough, you're, you're going to wash some feet of some people that you didn't want to wash their feet. If you follow him long enough, you're going to offend some Pharisees. And if you follow him long enough, you are going to see some miracles. You're not just going to be witnesses of miracles. You are going to be catalysts of miracles. If you follow him closely enough. Now again, we seek Jesus, not the miracles. It's God that does the miracles. We don't do the miracles. He just invites us to be part of them. So as we keep our eyes on Jesus and as we follow him into these times and into these, these things of trusting and believing him, we get to see these amazing things happen around us. You follow Jesus long enough, you're going to find yourself in the middle of some miracle. Here's what we see. John 11. Finally getting there. Miracle that Jesus performs. The grim reaper versus the grave robber. All right? Remember, Jesus did not come just to make bad people good. Jesus came to bring people that are dead back to life. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This is the Mary whose brother Lazarus, now sick, was the same one who poured perfume on her Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. That's a whole sermon right there that I preached four or five years ago. Not, not Lord, the one that loves you is sick. No, the Lord, the one you love. 
It's about his love. What, what compels God to do a miracle? What compels God to do something? Not our love for him, but his love for us. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death, for it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. <laughs> he loves them so much. He loves them. He loves them whole family. And so when he heard this, he stayed there two more days. <laughs> then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Jesus is not a day late. He's not a dollar short. He is four days late and four dollars short, right? Like on coming to do this. And I, I mean, the thing is that Jesus could have. We know who Jesus is. He, he does not have to live within the, the confines of our, our, our dimension. He lives outside of the dimensions of our time space, right? We know that he walks through walls later on. He walks on water. Like he doesn't, so he could just transcend. He could be there. He could walk through the walls and heal Lazarus while he's sick on his bed. He could have been taking his last breath, and he would have been showing up and healing him right there. Jesus has already done this. He's already revealed his healing power. But now Jesus is using this moment to show and reveal his resurrection power. And I want to encourage you, those, and you're, I'm right there with you. There's moments where your faith, you're walking by faith right now, and sometimes it can feel like things go from bad to worse. And in that moment, we can get upset and we get angry with God, but what if when things go from bad to worse, it's actually setting God up that he wants to reveal more of his grace, more of his love, more of his power, more than you have ever known. He wants to do, he, he, we all want to experience a miracle. We all want to see God show up and do an amazing, credible thing, but we don't want to be in a place where we need God to do a miracle. Right? <laughs> I want to see a miracle, but I don't want to be in a place where I need a miracle. Sometimes you got to be in the grave for four days to really experience the unprecedented miracle like this. Jump down to verse 17. He says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus is dead for four days. And that's where we would put, Lazarus is dead, four days, period. Jesus said this sickness will not end in death, but we're just told that Lazarus died. When everyone else says it's over, it's not over until God says it's over. It's not over until God says it is over. And some of us are in spots where it feels like there's no way for God to even answer our prayer. We feel like there is no way forward, whatever it might be. Maybe you were dating someone. Maybe you're married to someone. Maybe you're in a relationship. And it feels like it is completely over, dead, and gone. No resurrection happening. Maybe you've made a mistake and, and you think, man, I'll never be the same because of this sin, this problem I did, this, 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 this fraud that I did. You feel like your life is over. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you have someone that's sick that you, that, that you love. Maybe it's a job you've lost. Maybe you've lost your savings. Maybe you invested it into something and it, it all fell apart. I'm telling you, it's not over until God says it is over. 
We think a period goes there, but God wants to put a comma, right? He wants to put it a comma and say, like, God, we want to put God, when we put God into the equation, he changes it. I love what Oswald Chambers says this way. Sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we are too short-sighted to see what he is aiming for. Come on. When we get the perspective of heaven, we think that God's, we just are so focused on God answering this part of the prayer. And he's like, no, I've got something. You're not even aiming. You, you thought I was aiming there? I would have missed the target I was aiming for. I'm doing something so much higher, so much greater. Listen, this is what we've learned. If you follow Jesus and the people that are clapping, knowing this, they know that usually, typically of what I've experienced, before God adds, he usually subtracts. Before he multiplies, he usually prunes. Before God brings something to life, something has to die. And we have a tendency as humans to hit the panic button and to freak out and think that it's over and there's no way forward. But I'm telling you that God is ready to do something like you have never seen before. So here's the sisters talking. First jump down to verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, somebody say even now. Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Mary and Martha both say the same thing because this, this is a long story. But the first one runs into him, then the next one runs into him. And they, they say, if you would have been here, they're a little passive aggressive with Jesus, right? Like, I mean, I, like you're talking to Jesus and you're saying, Jesus, if you would have been here, if you would have done something, kind of blaming Jesus, kind of aren't blaming Jesus, kind of are, kind of like, what, what's going on? Are you blaming him? Like, we're all a little, but we all get a little passive aggressive with Jesus, right? We get a little passive aggressive, like, because we know that God could solve the problem, cure the disease, help with the job, bring the kids back to Christ, you know, provide what he needs to do. We know that he could do it, but when he doesn't do it, we're like, God, if you, you could have done it. You could have done it this way. We all get a little passive aggressive. But there again, there's the word but. But, don't you love those conjunctions, right? Conjunction, function, what's your function? Hooking up words and phrases. It is so sad. There's a whole generation growing up that doesn't know anything about schoolhouse rock or Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, man, no wonder this generation has problems. Like, didn't grow up with schoolhouse rock. All right, so <laughs> hooking up words and phrases. But if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But, and it's the most encouraging verse <laughs> in this whole story, I know that even now, whatever, now God will give you whatever you ask, Jesus. You and the Father are one. Even now, even now, even now that my brother is dead, even now when it seems impossible, even now when everything, everyone else around me is saying, quit, throw the towel in, you're crazy for even continuing to hope, even now, Jesus, even now, you can do something. We're reading this and we go, oh my gosh, is Mary and Martha holding out for hope? Are they holding out? Like, if you would have been here, it would have been good. But even, even after four days, so when do you give up? Do you give up after one day? Do you give up after two days? After three days? Surely after four days. But Martha and Mary are somehow holding on to some kind of hope. 
And our modern thinking, our enlightenment says that we want to rationalize it in our way of understanding the human emotions. And what would we do if we were there with Mary and Martha? We would sit down and go, even now, okay, they're just grieving. They're still in the denial stage of grieving because we understand how emotions are. And they're not quite there yet. They're in the grieving process. And they're in denial. Wouldn't we? Isn't that how we would counsel them? We would look at them like they're crazy. They're in denial. We know that denial ain't just a river in Egypt. That it is something that people really struggle with, right? So he goes, the moment when it seems like you're out of touch with everyone. That moment when it seems like everybody is shaking their heads at you because you are in touch with a reality that is so much more than a reality that you can taste, see, or touch Everybody shakes their heads and goes, what are you thinking? It's not a comfortable place to be. Have you been there? Have you been there when everybody else looks at you like you're crazy because of your faith? Have you been there? Have you been that moment where like, I've been there where, have you ever been? I've been, I've been judged by other Christians for simply trying to have faith and trust in something that the circumstances didn't look like it was going to happen. Beyond the physical circumstances. People think you're crazy. People thought I'm crazy. People still think I'm crazy, but you're still here. Right? (laughs) People thought, listen, people thought Jesus was crazy. Because he didn't fit into the norm. He didn't fit into the mindset. Jesus walks into the temple... And he goes, to, and the, this is the same week of leading in this, this Palm, after Palm Sunday. Then he goes to the temple and like throws the tables over, the money changers. I could imagine everybody else going, that's crazy. What is Jesus doing? That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's crazy. And everybody else is thinking, he's crazy, when in fact we should go, no, that is crazy that they've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. That they are selling and they are taking advantage of poor people in the very house of God. But what we do in our modern mind, in our modern concept, we go with the, what everybody else is saying. We go with the cultural norm. Right? It's the crazy ones. It's the crazy one. We're the crazy ones that just take a moment to like, hey, can we see past what all the media is being shoved down our throat and all the agendas that are being told us that are fake and they're trying to shape our mind to the patterns of this world instead of the patterns and the word of God? Can we stop and go, oh, no, my mind is renewed by the word of God. My mind is renewed by Christ, and it is not by the patterns of this world. It is crazy. It is crazy that a nation that started with their library, of they bought these books, the first books in the Congress library was the Bible. Yes, one had the, the stories of Jesus cut out, other Bibles in there. Starts with this, that now we are a nation that believes that teens and preteens should start to change their gender with hormone blockers and surgeries. And if the parents stand up, they say the parents are the crazy ones. I'm telling you, when our minds are renewed, when you start seeing things as normal, that (laughs) our normal is so subnormal that it seems abnormal. Follow that for a moment, right? Like, I mean, our, our, the, the world is becoming a darker place, and as, as we, we bring the light into it, we can look crazy for believing the word of God, for believing that God created people a certain way. Jesus is, in fact, the most normal person that's ever lived. 
For Jesus, miracles were normal. Don't you want to be at a place where miracles are normal? And sickness and disease is uncommon? Wow, wouldn't that be incredible? Like, that's what it was like for Jesus. Like, that was, that was unnormal. That was normal to see a miracle. It was unnormal for sickness and disease to make its way. Some of us would say, Mary and Martha are just grieving. But she's speaking in faith, and it looks like she's out of touch with reality, but she says it again. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now jump down to verse 38, and Mary and Martha are a lot like us. Don't you love it when people in the Bible are a lot like us? Like one moment, they're like, I believe if you were here, anything you ask for God, anything you ask for Jesus, God will do it. You are right there with him. One minute full of faith, and the next moment shocked at how Jesus is going to do it. One moment we can believe in the eternal, the afterlife, but then for Jesus to invade here is a bit more challenging. Verse 38 says this, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across of the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? One moment, Mary Martha, believing what Jesus said. Oh, you can do whatever you want. But, oh, move the stone away. Hold on. That's going to stink. He's been in there for four days. Have you ever gotten home from a family trip or a vacation? You come home, and your refrigerator's dead, and you open a dead refrigerator, and how bad that smells? That's an awful smell. Any of you ever smelled the, the decaying animal, right? The decay, when something dies and the decay of that. When we lived in Jamaica, we had terrible, we lived on a coffee farm, so what comes with coffee farms is mice and rats, and there used to be mice that would get into the house, and we'd set all kind of glue traps and other traps, and we'd catch the mice, but there was this one giant rat that kept on springing the trap and getting away with the cheese, whatever we put on there, you know, and, and he would get away. We'd see, like, the glue traps upside down, and he got away, so the only thing we had to do, because this rat was big and nasty, was put out some rat poisoning. You put out rat poisoning, and it goes... And he goes under the house to die. We didn't think that one through because there was not a crawl space that you can crawl under. Two, three days later, you walk in that house and you are overcome with the smell of a decaying, dead rat. We had to smell our way to where we thought it was and actually cut out the floor and pull out a nasty, dead rat to get rid of the smell. So, <laughs> awful. So that's what they're like, hey, we, we, smelt the, we smelt the decaying animal before. That tomb's going to smell awful, Jesus, if you take that away. Because God doesn't, he doesn't do things the way we think he's going to do it, right? Like, can't he just walk, can't, can't Lazarus just come through the stone? No, he says, move it away. So they took the stone away. Then Jesus looked and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. He's always like saying, hey, me and the Father one, letting everybody, hey, everybody know, me and him talking. Everybody know that he's answering this prayer. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. Now, 
Again, those of us that have read the story know the story, hear it every year. We go, we know how the outcome comes. We know that Lazarus is going to come out. We know he's going to rise from the dead. And we know that's the whole celebration of Palm Sunday and all of this stuff that people are like, he's raised. But just think for a moment. Think for a moment with me. What if Lazarus didn't come out of the tomb? Just for that moment, like Jesus is like putting it all on the table. This is this moment, like, first it's like cruel and unusual punishment if he doesn't raise him from the dead, right? And Jesus has done all of these miracles, done all of this incredible stuff. Now, this one is undeniable. You cannot deny, you cannot explain this one away. They know that he's been dead. He's been in that tomb. They checked his heartbeat, his pulse. He did not have one. They put him in here. And this is Jesus' last miracle. And like any good sports team, you're just as good as your last game. You're just as good as your last miracle. So Jesus is risking his name, his reputation, everything. They're going to call him a fake if this does not come true. So Jesus, yeah, he could have got there early. And he could have saved him from being sick. He could have healed him. But he chose to show and reveal that his power is above death itself. He chose to do that. Verse 44 says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So Lazarus calls, Jesus calls Lazarus and he comes out in a moment. Now a little bit of understanding of customary burial process for Jewish people at this time. They would, historians will tell us that when they wrapped them up, it would be about a hundred pounds of grave clothes, of cloth wrapped. You're thinking mummified. Like they are, it says that, it says like they wrapped his hands and feet were wrapped. So like, like, not like we always think like, oh, they're all individually wrapped. No, they are wrapped all together like a mummy like this. So Jesus performs two miracles. First, he raises him from the dead, and somehow Lazarus happens to get out of the tomb like this. Like, he's all, he's all bound together, and I could just imagine, just to think of that. Everybody, you guys know when you're the most emotional, you've just been crying, there's wailers at the tomb. What happened? You go from crying to laughing. Like, you are crying one moment because Lazarus is dead, and then you see Lazarus getting out doing a new dance called Lazarus. And like, every family reunion from now on, they're going, hey, Lazarus, doing Lazarus doing Lazarus, you know, like, because he has to, like, work his way out of the tomb for people to come. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Forever ruined this story for you. You're welcome. <laughs> Here he comes out of the tomb. <laughs> God, look at that, see? God turns our mourning into laughing. Yes, right? He turns tragedy into triumph. He gives us, he gives us joy like only he can give, and this is a, a beautiful moment beautiful moment of the foreshadow of the resurrection because we all know I guess we want to tie it to ourselves that each one of us because of our sins we are wrapped in our own grave clothes our souls were buried alive we were mummified because of the sins and the keep on sinning and putting more on we had more than a hundred pounds of sin weighing us down and Jesus is calling each one of us out. And he has done just as he called Lazarus, he called Damien. He said, Damien, come out of that tomb. Come out of that dead. Come out of that grave. Come out. And it's the same as he's called Marco and he's called Ron. He's called all of us to come out as we've surrendered to Christ as the Lord of our life. And Jesus does this amazing thing and he gives Lazarus new life. Now, church history goes on and tells us two possible things read about this week of what, what did Lazarus and 
Sister Mary and Martha do after this, like after the resurrection and stuff? Well, church tradition says that um, someone says that they made it to the island of Cyprus, um, where Lazarus was the, the first bishop there. And he started the church in the modern city there. And they say that the church of St. Lazarus is built over his second tomb. Think about that. Just his second tomb. How many of us have a second tomb, right? Like, isn't that just amazing? Like his second tomb. Another church history says that he went to to France and he was uh, being chased down for the persecution, and that him and his sisters hung, hid in a tomb. How funny is that? We don't know which how it went, but the fact is that history tells us that he lived a second life. He lived a second life. He lived a second life, and that's what Jesus comes to offer each one of us. And he comes to call us and to invite us into a second life where he sets us free from our sin, our sickness, and our disease. And I just want to tie this in. As Daniel said, next week we're having Easter. We're making room. We're making space. It's an opportunity for people to come and have a second life. That this is the life before Jesus called them out of the grave. That they get to come into a new life with Christ. That they are forever changed. And he comes and gives us life abundantly. Life abundantly, meaning that hey, this isn't like just like 70, 80 years on this life. No, I'm giving you life eternity. And I'm not just giving you like, I'm not just giving you regular life, I'm giving you abundant life. And this is a better quality of life with purpose and mission and power to go and do this. So what I'm getting at is that Jesus performs miracles. Jesus performs the greatest miracle of forgiving of us of our sins giving us new life in him. And if I'm honest, if I look around the room, most of us are probably okay with that. We get that part. We've come to put our trust and our hope and our faith in Jesus. If you haven't, we're going to invite you to do so. But there's other parts of us that we want to explain away the miraculous. And I don't know about you, but I need, don't we love to have the miraculous in our life? So I want you to think about the team's going to lead us in this song called Rattle. <laughs> About, and I love this line it says, and it says, impossible, what, you, what does it say, impossible is, since when has impossible ever stopped you? So we're going to sing this song, and as they lead the song, I want you to think about, where do I need the impossible <laughs> to be done in my life? What everybody else around is shaking their heads, what everybody else looks like it's dead, impossible, not going to happen. What is something that is impossible that needs to be done? And now we're going to open up these altars and we're going to pray for you, for the miraculous to happen in your life. That it's not theory, that it's not concept, that we don't explain it away, but we believe in a God who can do miracles.